Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pellico. And it is December 1st, 2019, and tonight is episode 54. We're going to be covering the top five films of 1969. The idea behind this came where we're going to cover each decennial year, so everything that ends in nine for the rest of this month, so 1969, 1979, 1989, and 1999, we're going to be covering in the month of December uh, as a way to end the year and then start anew in January with a whole new slate of top five episodes. How do you feel about this idea, Frank? I like it. Yeah. Um, I mean, so far I've only done 69, 79, and 89, but they're all pretty good lists, I think. Yeah. Curious to see what 99 looks like. Yeah, 99 is going to be interesting because it's a really weird year. Like, it's kind of all over the place. 89 is kind of all over the place, too. 89 is still a really strong list, I think. But No, I just mean it all over the place in terms of, like, different types of movies. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. Where I think, like, you have more variety the closer you get to the present day as opposed to some of these older lists where I think you have less movies coming out. In 1969, 1979, and <clears throat> consequently, they all end up being these things that are revered as classics a lot sure. of times, uh, where things from 89, there's so many movies that came out in that year in 99 that you'll you'll have a lot more variety, I think, in those lists. But um, Or maybe hot takes, I suppose, like is the idea. Right. Um, not Black Rain in 1989, not the not the, not the Michael Douglas movie, which is what I thought initially. Right, <clears throat> that'd be a, that, that, that'd be a hot take. It's a spoiler, but yeah, when you initially sent me Black Rain in 1989, I which is very confusing. Two movies of the same title in the same year. Yes, it's it's confusing. Uh, okay, so we're going to cover 1969, and one of the things that we've talked about that we wanted to do with this was. Not only talk about the movies themselves, but kind of put them a little bit in a context of like their importance to that time period. Uh-huh. Um, you were you were kind of keen on making sure that we did that a little. And bit. And their importance, like their legacy, basically, or like what they did. Sure. What yeah. they influenced. Right. Um, which is uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's important, and uh, consequently, we also have on some of these lists then some movies we've already talked about. So we'll still talk about them a little bit, but I'll also refer people back to the episode where yeah. we spent more time on them. So, uh, 1969. So this is, I think I got my history, right? This is summer of love, right? Mm-hmm. 69. Uh, so I guess time period wise, we're talking about like the kind of mainstream nature of the hippie movement starting to happen. Vietnam war, well, kind of coming to an end, though, really. Like, this is the culmination of the hippie movement. Throughout is this Woodstock year as well? 69? Uh, I think 69 is Woodstock. Yeah. This is the um, the Manson murders, though. Right. Is this yeah. year. So, we've actually talked about 1969 quite a bit <clears throat> in the past few months with talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right. <coughs> oh, pardon me. <clears throat> but, yeah, it's... um. It was an interesting year film-wise because you can, you can kind of see like, I don't know, like the move into like smaller, more independent films. I mean, I think that several of these movies or a couple of these movies definitely would qualify as like indie films today um, if they were released. Sure. Um, And just like a broader look at like more controversial social topics and things to do with like sexuality and... Um, psychology and I don't know, just 
violence. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of variety on this list, and actually, like I really enjoy all all five of these movies. Hmm. Uh, was there anything that's not on these five movies that you considered? So the thing that came the closest, I would say, to making the list, and I really struggled with it, is um, Lindsay Anderson's If, because mm. um, I really like that movie a lot. But in comparison to the other five, the mo- I would have taken off the number five movie and replaced it with If, but I think the number five movie is a little more important culturally and um, like socially, and is honestly just kind of a more interesting movie in general, um, whereas If is just kind of... Like, I think If is a fantastic movie, but it's basically, you know, like a British boys, like, boarding school, and I don't know. It's... Oh, If is the Michael McDowell movie. Yeah, Michael That McDowell. I dislike. Uh-huh. Right. Gotcha. Thank you. <laughs> right. I didn't do it for you, but... Um, and then I thought about Easy Rider um, a little bit, but I'm not the biggest fan of Easy Rider. Like, I, I think Easy Rider's okay. Um, I thought about True Grip, but I didn't really want to talk about that too much, and I, I still kind of find, like, the John Wayne westerns to be a little more boring to talk about as opposed to like the spaghetti westerns and another western that's on this list um then a couple of foreign films um army of shadows uh, a movie called kess and then um, a movie called z um z was another one that i really like heavily considered but i don't really know it that well i've only seen it once and so i didn't really want to like talk about it too much and i didn't know that i could do it justice what is Z? it's a war movie um maybe in Algeria or something. I can't remember where it takes place. It's been a really long time since I've seen it. It, If you look back in that time period, it makes a lot of like best of lists from mm-hmm. that time. I think Ebert has it on his top 10. He had stuff too, like, um, I mean like Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid is this year. Um, How do you feel about that? It's fine. I, I enjoy that movie. You know, I mean, it's, it's good performances. It's a fun movie. It's, I don't think it's like the best movie. Um, you have Bob and Carol, Ted and Alice is this year, which right. a lot of people were in love with at the time. But to me, it's just like, just boring. Like, I don't really find it to be like that interesting. And I don't know what I would talk about with it necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't know, I, I think the five movies that are on this list are like, they're all good movies. And then they all have something more that they offer in terms of like discussion and, you know, their relevance to even like modern cinema in some cases. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess we'll just go ahead and talk about the context of these movies and their legacy uh, uh, each at a time. So let's we'll go ahead and get started with number five on your list, which is The Honeymoon Killers. It's directed by Leonard Castle, starring Shirley Stoker, Stoller, Tony LoBianca uh, as the two primaries, Martha and Fernandez, uh, in the movie. So it has a 95%. From critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 69% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and why you like it so much? Uh, It's based on real life um, couple that murdered elderly women. Um, Martha's a sullen, bitter, overweight nurse, like nursing manager at a hospital um, in the South. Um, Lives with their mother has kind of like an overbearing best friend who enrolls her in a lonely hearts club program, um, where she starts to have pen pal communication with this guy, Raymond, um, who's a Lothario comes down, beds her like basically extorts money from her and then sort of does a disappearing act. 
Um, but she contacts him and feigns a suicide attempt um, to get him to allow her to come up and see him again. Um, and then realizes that that's what he does. Like, that's how he earns his living is by basically, like, fleecing women out of money in, like, exchange for the promise of, like, a long-term romantic relationship. Um, she agrees to actually help him do it by masquerading as his sister. Um, and then they go on to eventually murder, um, three of the women and one of the women's child, children, child, like her daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty, pretty bleak movie. Um, for the time, it's an interesting look at like codependence and like the lengths that someone's willing to go to. I guess just for the idea of like being with someone, like being like in love, um, and also depression and also just psychosis. I mean, Martha's like Raymond is a sleazeball, but it's just his job from his perspective. Like he's not, while he's like stealing money from people, he's like from his point of view, he's not really hurting anybody because he's just moving from rich woman to rich woman just to take money from him. I'm sort of like in the same vein of uh, Uncle Charlie and, um, uh, what's that movie called? Shadow of a Doubt? Yeah, Shadow of a Doubt. Right. Um, except for he, except for Charlie's murdering, murdering them, but Raymond's just taking their money and then yeah. moving on. Um, she makes him promise that he's not going to have any kind of like intimate relations with these women because he's keeping her along under the idea that eventually when they get enough money, they'll get married. Um, but she's, we, we were talking about this movie offline yesterday. And I, I think that the best way to describe it is like, it's a John Waters movie with all the camp and tongue in cheek, like self-knowing parody, like removed from it. I mean, it's just, these are outlier characters who are not good people, um, who kind of just like drift along the fringe. I mean, even in her job, she's just this bitter woman living with her mom in a small apartment and who has no, they, in a in a brief scene in the beginning, it's Stoller fantastic in this movie. Like it's a really great performance. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Lo Bianca, I think, is a, a great performance as well, but it's not as nuanced as Stoller's performance. Um, I mean, she's just, she's mean and she's self-loathing and self-pitying at the same time. Like, she's incredibly woe is me. Um, and that's the way that she gets what she wants. Like, she's basically, like, just a, an overgrown child in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you get the impression this is the first guy she's probably ever like had any kind of like intimate relations with. So she's just willing to do whatever he wants her to do. And he sees her as a means to an end as like an extra like tool in his whatever, um, his kit to like fool women into thinking that he's something greater than what he is. Um, you you compared his performance. You said it was kind of like a little too Ricky Ricardo for you. Right. Which I understand, but I think that's on purpose. And I think that there's there's the scene midway through the movie when um, he's with the... I can't remember the woman's name, but it's the pregnant one. Right. That's kind of like middle-aged and she keeps trying to like have sex with him throughout the course of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and he loses that veneer of like the happy-go-lucky and gets really angry sure at martha for like basically trying to like mess up his game and i i think that's the thing is he's just an actor like his whole life is him just performing as this like slight variation of the same character it could be could be intentional yeah, like I, that whole Ricky Ricardo aspect, as I glibly like compared it to, like, right? Yeah, I mean, I I I feel like it is, um, and really, I think the movie's more about like her. Um, he has no qualms with like killing the women, sure, to get him out of the way. Like when they, the elderly lady that they, the first one that they, the woman that's pregnant, they kill because they poison her. Mm-hmm. Um, or they gave her an overdose and then put her on a bus and like, she's, she dies like on the bus. So even though they killed her, it's not like outright like murder right. necessarily because it wasn't a hundred percent. The intent wasn't to like murder her. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when they, when they beat and strangle the older lady, Faye, I think is a character's name to death. It was pretty horrific and he's got no problem with doing it. Mm-hmm. And then later when they kill, um, the final woman they kill, um, who's pregnant with, with with Ray's uh, baby. And that's like the, the catalyst for the whole movie is um, Martha realizes that he's just going to lie to her continuously and he's going to sleep with these women and he's never going to be faithful to her and it's never going to end. And so even though she still murders the child to keep her quiet, like she then calls the police on him and right. turns them in. And that's what leads to them um, going to jail and Dakota lets you know that they get electrocuted. Um, but he sends her a letter saying she's the only woman he ever loved and he still loves her. And so I guess there's some question as to how true that is. And maybe he does like actually like love her because she's the only person that knows him for who he is. Like that actually sees like knowing what he's doing and still accepting him for it. That maybe that. Yeah. And I think I, and I think that's actually based off of fact because like this movie <clears throat> what is it lonely hearts killers is that yeah, what they were uh-huh. called um <clears throat> because it's using that factual basis and kind of interweaving like some fact and a lot of fiction uh i think that's actually like something that happened is he did like i think send her like a letter like that then i think i saw actually saw like the contents of the letter and it was something very similar to that like still claiming that he loved her and everything <clears throat> yeah i mean they um it definitely like it's like a lot of like docudramas from the time where it's, it's based on the truth of a situation and then, you know, sensationalized. Um, but I mean, it's just like, it's while it doesn't delve as deeply as we can now because of like, just like, I think the modern understanding of like psychology and, um, especially like, you know, since the seventies and eighties with like profiling, like having more understanding of what causes people to kill. And, um, so it, it feels a little ham fisted at times. Like it just kind of feels like a, like a broad, like glossing over of like pretty, um, I don't know, pretty weighty psychological like topics, but I think it's a really interesting examination. Um, of things that probably were really uncomfortable at the time for people to, to deal with. Um, the fact that she knows how to bring about an abortion through like certain like conco- like cocktail of pills, um, even though she's trying to use it to kill the woman, she's still like, that's what, you know, as a nurse, like she knows how to do that. Um, 
<clears throat> the idea of like abandoning her family, like putting her mother in a nursing home to go be with this man who has obviously like tried to scam her and like even succeeded at scamming her and you know, their willingness to just like murder without like just for profit. Like there's no, it's not a crime of passion or anything. It's just, they're just doing it because it's a means to an end. I mean, it's, um, it's a pretty, pretty bleak movie and a pretty like, I don't know, glaring examination of like what at the time would have been like a dark, like underside that I think that most movies would shy away from, from looking at. Sure. I mean, Dave Kerr, who, who liked this movie said that, um, it brings a spare dignity and genuine depth of characterization to this exploitation subject matter. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that you and I talked about probably the most is because it's my biggest problem with the movie is I just find it a little dull at times just because it, it lacks that psychological component to it. Yeah. And I get that at the time period, it's pretty ahead of its time, I think, in terms of, like, like looking at those characters right. in, in a psychological way. But it's still... Like, you and I watching it now, just with our understanding throughout our lives of psychology, know more about, psycho like, abnormal psychology than they did when they made that movie, like, sure. filmmakers. So it just kind of makes it a little reductive at times, I think. I mean, some, yeah. I mean, I Like, he's, he's an opportunist. Her, her, her killing is more about passion, like, because of her jealousy and, like, all those kind of things a lot of times. Where his is, he just goes along with it because he's an opportunist who is about survival. Right, but it's also a means to an end to her because she's trying to get through this time where like he's still trying to earn this money from doing this so they can mm -hmm. get married. I mean, now the, the killing of the, the, um, the, the, the last killing of the woman that's pregnant with Ray's baby. I mean, that's, that's the most like crime of passion one. True. And that's the one where she realizes that she can't continue. The thing I like though, is that there's plenty of movies from this time period before and after, you know, the deal with like killers and even movies that are similar um, in tone to like this one, but they never let Martha be a caricature. Like she's never, even though she can be hysterical at times, she's never like histrionic or, um, like over the top. Like it's not like cartoonish. Like oh, no. she's, it's a very like real performance, you know, of somebody who just, yeah, there, there's a very rational mind behind even the emotion. Like, you, she's not, yeah, she's not a stereotype whatsoever. Yeah. Um, I just want to say her performance is what carries this movie to me. Like, if it, if it weren't, if it weren't for her, I'd probably have a worse opinion of this movie. Yeah. But I don't know who Shirley Stoller is. Like, I've you've you've seen her in other stuff, haven't? Yeah, she's in um. She's in Clute. Uh, this is her first movie. Oh, okay. Um, huh. she really plays the the madam or whatever in Clute. Mm. She's in um, bunch of stuff in the eighties and like minor roles. She was on a bunch of television too. Yeah. Maybe, um, maybe it's I just didn't haven't never seen her this young. Maybe she or plays like a character in Frankenhooker. Mm. Um, <laughs> mid eighties. I don't know. I mean, just, <laughs> right. She was on Pee Wee's Playhouse for a while too. Mm. Mrs. Steve. She played hmm. that character. Mm -hmm. They also they they make her look awful in this movie. Like she's made to look like 
I mean, she she was a heavy woman like her entire life, but they make her look like yeah. pasty and mm-hmm. sallow. I mean, even though it's black and white, like you you feel like the way that they like highlight her freckles, like she looks right. like sickly and baggy eyed and yeah. I don't know. Just but I, I I thought that was an interesting component of this too is that like they cast a they cast a normal looking woman in this right. role and. I don't know. I mean, again, like, I, I mean, I get they're doing it because she's supposed to be a little bit overweight because that's th- the actual person was, right. but also because it ties into a lot of things about like, you know, being rejected or not like, you know. but again, it feels like ahead of its time. Like most, <laughs> even up until like, even now you would still have casting directors and, and directors that would sit there and, like, look at the character and say, like, well, we can just change the character slightly and then cast this, you know, fit, you know, like, you know, B-level, A-level Hollywood actress um, and just change the character completely in terms of the looks. I I thought it took um, some guts to cast this normal-looking woman um, who wasn't, like, a Hollywood starlet in this, like, role... I know that it was cheap. Like, look, I, I this was done on the cheap. This movie, um, which is even more impressive that it looks good too. Most of the time, do you know that um, Scorsese was supposed to direct this movie? Scorsese did apparently direct for like two weeks, and then got fired. And got fired because he um, was behind, like the the time for production or something like that. He ran behind or something, and they fired him. Yeah, so Castle took over, and Castle wasn't like a director really. So <laughs> he's a musician, isn't he? Like. Like a, uh, con- like a classical musician or something yeah, like that? Yeah, that and like a documentarian too. Yeah, or right. Something like yeah. That. I don't really know. But this is the it. only thing that he ever directs, apparently, like in terms of like a fiction piece. Yeah, a feature, full-length feature film. Uh, which, yeah, again, is impressive. Uh, I, it would have been really interesting to see what Scorsese would have done that early in his career with something like this. Um, right. But apparently some of his the footage he filmed didn't, I don't know what it is, but apparently some of what he filmed in those couple weeks, like, or a few weeks, like, didn't make the final cut of this. Yeah. I mean, he went on to direct um, some stuff for Roger Corman, like Boxcar Birthday, I think, is Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, moved into Mean Streets and Taxi Driver. Sure. Certainly yeah. had a fine career. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right after. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> But yeah, I, I I thought there was a lot of interesting things about this movie. Watching it, I thought that her performance was great. I thought that, you know, I thought there was really tense scenes at times, yes. like that are that are done as really well edited. I I think like you know in a very classical kind of like maybe like forties way, but very very classically edited that creates a lot of tension during certain scenes. Yeah. I thought it was really risque for a lot of the things they were doing. Like, sure. um on camera like for that time period i again just like the john waters thing you were talking about i thought that all of that was really well done and actually kind of contextualized john waters even more for me i think like seeing the first 25 minutes of this movie of kind of what maybe he was right almost like parodying even more like i got it i mean it's not like they right, didn't the, get it, the but. tawdry reality of like middle-class suburbia basically right because this is that yeah tawdriness of middle-class suburbia during that time period that he's kind of mocking yeah these women that are basically just like looking for this you know these heartthrobs to come and like you know f them and <laughs> under the guise of like getting married or whatever yeah but no it's 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 an interesting movie um 
Yeah, I just got a little like with the psych- the psychological stuff. I just expect a little bit more yeah. from my modern perspective. So, but and I can't, I, just I can't for- hold that against right. it. So. I, I I always forgive that for older sure. stuff just because. Right. What are you gonna do? You yeah, know? I understood. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I won't go any more into it. So, I mean, most of the criticism of this was that it's um that it's too repetitive. It's the same thing over and over again, and. I can see that, I guess, but I mean, I think each each different scam is complicated in its own way, right. like by some some facet or another, and, and makes, mostly by her and her inability to just be cool. Yeah, but I mean, each woman that they go and scam is different with different motivations and different circumstances, which I think makes it a little bit more interesting than um, you know, than maybe some people give it credit for. But I can see people being. I mean, most people are bored black and white movies, like, in the modern day, like, it seems. Like, when you actually look at, like, I have been for the past year and a half of reviews from users and stuff like that, people get kind of bored with black and white more often than they do color. Right. There's, um, there's a more modern movie that's very similar to this. I'm going to kind of consider it, like, a spiritual successor directed by, um, the guy that directed, uh... Um, Cal, uh, Cal, Calvary, um, mm-hmm. called Alleluia. That's the similar idea. Like, but it's a woman that leaves like her family to be with this guy that, and then like, they murder like mm-hmm. Lonely Hearts people. Mm-hmm. It's like 2000, 2014. Okay. Um, but it's good. Yeah. So if you ever want to see a different movie, like a different perspective on it, that movie's pretty good. Yeah. All right, so number four on your list is a movie we have talked about before. It's Midnight Cowboy, directed by John Schlesinger, starring Dustin Hoffman as Ratso Rizzo, John Voight as Joe Buck. It has a 91% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 88% from audiences. We covered this back in episode eight, the top five most depressing movies, <clears throat> which I can't believe that episode's that long ago. Really? But... That feels like it was just like this year. Right, I know. Um, so... Do you want to go ahead and just explain a little bit about the movie and yeah, I mean, kind of summarize what you like about it? You know, it's 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 basically like a like a dysfunctional love story between two guys, um, one of whom is a failed gigolo, not even failed, just like unsuccessful gigolo, and the other one who's like a low rent con man. Um, it's a good examination, I think, of what love is really like what constitutes like love between people um both in like the carnal sense and you know just in like the spiritual and metaphysical sense and it's an interesting look at like poverty in a time when you know you really weren't seeing a lot of movies that dealt with like again like similar to um honeymoon killers like the other side of like the world basically um Similar also to Honeymoon Killer's little ham-fisted and look at, like, psychology and what causes people to be who they are. Like, you know, childhood trauma specifically or, like, youth trauma in terms of um, uh, Joe Buck's character in this movie. Um, Beautiful movie, great score, uh, great soundtrack. Um, Really... Really kind of, like, hopeful, but also, like, really sad at the same time. I mean, you know, most movies you see, the the characters are 
like intelligent and witty and, and like Joe Buck is an idiot, you know, and it's interesting to have this doofus who understands very little of how the world actually works as like your main character or one of your two main characters. Um, phenomenal performances by Voight and uh, Hoffman in it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe my favorite Dustin Hoffman performance, like of all time, I think, or it's right up there with them. Like, you know, with maybe Dog Day Afternoon. Um, but just a just a fantastic movie. And really interesting look at um, homosexuality in a time where that was not, like, a easy topic to cover in, in an American film, especially. Um, probably helped by the fact that Schlesinger himself was, was gay. Um, so maybe having, like, a little more, I guess, insight or vested interest in, like, making it a non-exploitive look at homosexuality whereas like a lot of stuff from this time it would have been looked at as like a like a disease or a like a mental illness and you know i don't know just it's a it's it's a great movie it's a classic of of american cinema i think what do you think its legacy is if any i mean honestly i think it's more Like, especially, like, like the Ratso Rizzo character. I think it's one of those movies that's just kind of seeped into, like, the pop culture consciousness, like, collective unconscious of, of our nation. And I don't know, like, as we, like, as we move further away from it, <clears throat> it's released, like, maybe that's not true anymore. But I know when I was a kid, like, you know, you could make a joke about Ratso Rizzo and a lot of people would know what that joke was. Like, sure. Like, our parents' generation, like, were people that saw this movie in the theater and knew this movie. <clears throat> and, um, and there's a lot of small things, like, things that, like, Joe Buck says and does. And just the way the movie's filmed, the incorporation of, um, this is another one that, while not at all based on, like, a real scenario as far as I know, kind of, like, breaks that fourth wall a little bit by incorporating, like, the, um, like, the Warhol-esque, like, factory environment um, into, you know, the, like, weaves it into, like, the fabric of the film, so it feels, like, more realistic, um, and again, like, I think that it's pretty groundbreaking in terms of just being, like, a very frank examination of, you know, homosexuality, and, like, showing it as something that's not, even though, you know, Joe Buck's initial reactions to being, like, a, like a male gigolo for other men, you know, is like horror and disgust. Mm-hmm. Um, he definitely falls into like a non-sexual relationship with, with, you know, with Rizzo mm-hmm. to the point where he abandons, like he, he's finally like achieved his dream where he's found these rich women that are willing to pay to have sex with him, and he can't perform and he can't like finish because he's worried about, you know, this other man that he's basically mm-hmm. in love with. And just abandons the life altogether to try and take him somewhere where he can get better. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I think it's... Directorially, Schlesinger, like, does a really good job of filming, like, the city. Um, he does a good job of marrying, like, you know, the the Nilsson, Everybody's Talking At Me song. Mm-hmm. With, like, multiple scenes of the movie and just, like pretty brilliant like repetition of like that one song and like just the opening like never really like finishing the song but just like 
the repetition of the day-to-day, especially in, like, Joe Buck, like, the way that he goes about his life. Um, and then the score of the movie with, like, the Midnight Cowboy um, theme song is is pretty... Pretty, I think, influential score-wise. Like, I know that it's it's been, like, used and referenced a lot in, like, subsequent films. Sure. And covered by, you know, like, bands and stuff. Yeah. I mean, this movie's, like, pretty parody, too, at times, in the sense of using everybody's talking at me. Right. People have used, um... It's par- Seinfeld parodies Midnight Cowboy in an episode with the whole bus scene at the end. Um... With Kramer being sick and Jerry like holding him and everything. Um, also, the "I'm walking here," "I'm walking like here" that. line is used right. in a lot of stuff, right? Yeah. So, like you said, I mean, I think it's really well known by like that boomer generation and right. like, carried on to us in some ways. So it's interesting because, like, I don't know how like the current like modern generation like looks at this movie or even like knows this movie, and right. I, I I wonder that a lot about film from especially like the the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s you know like a lot of stuff that and i can just say this like from the perspective of someone you know that has a kid a lot of stuff that i showed frankie was stuff from the 80s like stuff that i loved when i was you know as he was going through the same age as i was Mm -hmm. you know we're watching never-ending story and princess bride and i don't know flight of the navigator and shit like that um not flight of the navigator right specifically but right um, but it's not like this is like, I'm not going to sit down and be like, Hey, you should watch midnight cowboy with me. You know what I mean? Like, so I don't know. Right. I often wonder like, <clears throat> as we get older, like do these films like sort of like die off and lose their cultural import as much? Or is there like enough just because of like the ease of access to, you know, like all the streaming services of like people that'll find these older movies and start to fall in love with them again. Yeah. I wonder that myself just because I, it's, 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 it's a terrible stereotype, but the stereotype of millennials and Gen Z right now is the idea that they don't know anything before they were born. Um, and I don't think that's fair because it's obviously not true of all, but I mean, it's probably the reason it's a stereotype is because there is a little bit of truth to that. Like in the sense of the things they, watch or know but something like this is a relic it's an artifact of that time period right i think it's an artifact of the boomer generation and i think as they get older i mean i think you're going to see that this movie does just kind of disappear where it's like i think you look at like what is held what do people still know it's like out of like the the classics like what citizen kane keeps going through generations yeah i don't know what i mean like like does this like I mean, it gets down to, like, what is art in some ways and, like, what is lasting art. And I know if you go to the idea, like, the Keats idea of, like, something like universal truth yeah. or something like that, like, that a lot of people subscribe to, does this have universal truths in it? I mean, I and think it does, but... I, I think it does, but does it have... So is, is it too much of an artifact of that time period? I'll give you an, an, an interesting, like, like, I guess, analogy to that that question. So when I was going through these lists, I've seen 60% of the stuff that was released in 1989, probably. Like when I go back through, I mean, obviously not every movie, but when you look at like major releases or movies of import, like I've seen like a lot of that stuff, 79, probably 50%, 69, 30%, maybe. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's so many movies that were released this year 
I have no idea what they are. And, like, the important movies I've seen, but there's so much that's just, like... And it's, like, at some point, there's only a certain, you know, there's only a finite amount of time in your life where you can sit there and watch a movie. And Sure. A lot of these, like, what Frankie grew up watching was, like, Disney Channel movies. And, right. You know, and I, I would... and having me as a father like he's he's seen a lot of movies but mm-hmm. he's still like it's like a very small sliver of you know like everything that i've seen sure and i don't know even if he'll... so out of the movies you you considered putting on this list and the movies that are on this list here the number one movie that you have might is going to survive maybe i don't, I, don't I, 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 th- I i think it will historically i think it'll survive yeah um midnight cowboy i think has a high hope of surviving out of this year butch and sundance might have the best chance of surviving throughout the next 40 years maybe i don't know i, I mean i think if anything if any of them survive i mean i think it's it's those i mean three. i honestly would argue that easy rider is probably oh right one. easy rider right i forgot those. that's gonna like here. has the most ability to like maintain just because it's got that element of like counterculture like coolness to sure. it um and the number two movie has that counterculture element too but it's not cool it's something else entirely so i don't know okay yeah yeah i mean yeah it does it's it's not going to serve it's our in some circles it's already been forgotten right most so. circles i would imagine which is a shame okay so you've changed that to your number two then just so i know wait what did i have as number two before the foreign one? Yeah. Oh, no, no. That should be reversed. Okay. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I think... Um, I, I Okay. Small sample size. Like, you know, here last night. So, you can follow us on Instagram. This isn't a plug for that. But it's like, last night I post your coaster drawing of Ratso Rizzo on Instagram. Pretty much mo- a lot of the likes from it just came from, like, regular people. As opposed to people that are, like doing film related things all almost all in baby boomers it seems yeah like when i like actually look look to see who they were um which is i think telling you know it's like i want to some hashtag got to them uh i'm sure it wasn't the ratso rizzo hashtag that i put <laughs> on there as a joke but I'm, my guess is john Voyer, dustin hoffman maybe or something oh, like maybe, that yeah. um people that follow actors uh, potentially but yeah, I mean, it's like mostly mostly baby boomers that were liking it, which is um, which again I think signifies it's of a certain generation, right? Uh, much more. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if this will survive or not, but I think it has. It's it's one of those movies that has. I think you're right. Easy Rider. I think Butch and Sundance after that, just because there's so few westerns that get put out nowadays. Even though we go through these little revivals every yeah. so many years, that historically for westerns itself it'll always be there as one of those it's also robert redford and i don't think he's fallen that far out and paul newman right yeah Uh, yeah i mean so yeah i mean it's like two of like your top actors of that time period for for a number of decades and um and i think your number one on your list possibly because of that same reason yeah um has 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 a potential of it but um it's like midnight cowboy and easy rider to me are in like kind of the same category and I, I think Easy Rider wins out. Yeah, definitely being taken as an artifact. But yeah, I, don't know. 
I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. Like, um, I don't know if I'll live long enough to kind of see like how it, how it plays out. But yeah, some of these movies will be forgotten. But I think Midnight Cowboy is certainly worth watching at least once in your life. To yeah, hundred percent. Um, just to see it. So, um, we go more in depth into the movie itself, um, including some criticism from Dave, our friend Dave Kerr, and um, some some really interesting criticism from uh, Ebert in episode eight. If you want to go back in like the archives. Okay, so number three movie on your list is Boy. Um, it is directed by Nagisi Oshima. It stars Akiko Kiyama and Fumio Watanabe. It has 100% on uh, Rotten Tomatoes from critics and an 88% from uh, audiences. Are you laughing because I fucked up those names? I mean, it's just funny to hear you pronounce the Japanese names. <laughs> those are ones that I'm not um, not not as... Watanabe. I, 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 it's wa- Watanabe. Watanabe? Oh, okay. I would say that. I don't speak Japanese at all, but I've watched enough Japanese right, yeah. movies that I <clears throat> know how to pronounce them. Like I ones. only know if they were if they're Japanese wrestlers right. or similar enough to Japanese wrestlers, I know how to pronounce them. Otherwise, I have no fucking clue about Japanese um, names. And I actually, it's odd I didn't actually like look those up because normally a lot of times I have it phonetically spelled out right. for myself because I was just doing that with a bunch of German names recently. But okay, so. Uh, you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about this movie and uh, what you like about it? Um, so it's about this dysfunctional family um, that makes their living by faking um, auto injuries, basically, like where they fake that they've gotten hit by a car and then extort money out of the people that were driving the car to avoid like having to deal with like the hospitals or going to the police. Um the titular boy is the older son um, of the family. There's him and his younger son. And then his father, who's uh, claims to have been injured during World War II and has shrapnel still in his arm and his, his gut and can't work. So that's why they have to support him by doing these, um, these scams. And then his stepmother, um, who's the major force behind like organizing and carrying out the scams. Um, and they travel around and, you know, he really has like, it's, it's a really sad look at a, a kid who's tries to, tries to find a way to live a life without any kind of like grounding in, in the world where he's got no, you know, he can't go to school. He can't like, he doesn't have like a permanent home, um, tries to protect his brother from the same things that he has to deal with by creating this ridiculously vivid um, world story of like aliens and, and whatnot. Um, it's shot again, like this is another one that's shot in almost like a docudrama style, um, to the point where there is times where it goes to just still shots of like newspapers and whatnot to, um, show, I mean, I guess this was based on something that like really happened in Japan at the time. Like, um, I don't know about this specifically, but people who would like scam these like veterans or whatever that would use their children to run scams on people. Um, really different from a lot of other Japanese cinema at the time. Um, in terms of like, it's not a fond look at 
Japan is like a country. Like it's not, you know, it's a this guy and um, uh, Shohei Imamura, Shohei Imamura, um, were making movies that were very like transgressive in terms of like their view of of Japan, um, and also uh, the guy that did Vengeance is mine. Um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but um, really like sad performance by the kid who I think you told me I had no idea about this wasn't even an actor like they had found him in like an orphanage and yeah basically it seems like he kind of like to had some already degree, lived this life yeah kind of lived this life to some degree yeah um but they told him the the people the, the production crew like ended up like kind of taking him under their wing for however many months and like educating him and all these other things that wasn't being like services that weren't being given to him yeah but um Great performance by the the stepmother and the father, especially the father, who's just always like, he's just a, like a scumbag, you know, just using his child, um, to his own ends to not have to work himself. And I don't know, just always like a lot of like glad handing, but then a lot of like seething anger underneath like this genial exterior, um, Kid tries to escape at one point and basically go back to his grandparents, but fails because they either won't have him or, you know, whatever, and has to go back to, like, live this life again. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's a really... <clears throat> I, I, I really like it a lot because, like, a lot of stuff that I'm used to from this time, um, there's a lot of, like, around, like, the mid, mid to late 60s in Japan, you get a lot of... Um, historical drama and stuff that's set like during like the shogunate era of japan um especially like you know there's a lot of kurosawa from around this time that does that but also stuff like sancho the bailiff and ugetsu and um you know it's all stuff that takes place in the past because i think japan was still trying to come to terms with their role in world war ii and their shame at like their defeat you know basically being like crippled as a country in a lot of ways um and i think that you know it it feels like really raw because it's stuff that you know i don't think i think they're just starting to come to terms with like what they are as a country at this point and like seeing movies like this you know and again like the stuff that shohei Imamura is doing and um a couple other directors like it's really just powerful i um, mean especially like that kid's performance like it's so depressing like the mm-hmm. whole movie and um, towards the end, there's a scene where they're in a, like a field of snow and he's just like playing with his brother. And it's, it's, it's so sad, like to watch like this, what is he like eight or nine year old kid have to be like basically the adult in a family and like try and like be a parent to his, his younger brother to protect him from the evils of the world and stuff. It's just, um, yeah. very powerful and very sad. Yeah. I was, um. That's the scene that I teared up during um, and cursed you for because um, I don't like having emotion like at all. And um, <clears throat> although I find when I'm getting older, that's happening probably more and more. But yeah, that's the scene that got me because that scene that you're talking about is the boy decides that he's going to run away and his little brother's like what three probably yeah, or so two, two or three like comes outside just yelling brother brother after him and like wanted to go with him 
and he's like trying to explain to like his little brother that he can't go with him and eventually decides like to just take him and they just start playing in the snow and he built they built a snowman um and then you see he takes the boots right of the woman who died is yeah, it the boots? girl that it's, it's a little girl that dies yeah like well, young girl young girl and he takes her boots and like puts it like where the snowman's like holding the boots um and that's that's when you see like all the rage come out of him as he starts like because he says that the snowman's an alien because it's part of his little sci-fi fantasy world that's creating in his head as a way of like a coping mechanism right and then he like sits there and just like starts like you know punching the snowman and like you know you, you know like just like beating it down and like you know like destroying it um it's a really hard scene to watch it's it's the little brother stuff that got me but like that whole scene is incredibly tough um to get through just because you see all like the the frustration and the hurt and the rage like that's been built up in this little boy because of like what he has to deal with all the time um from from mostly his father i mean his stepmother actually overall like she uses him as a pawn sometimes but she also is much more caring to the boy than the father right. is I mean, um, she she definitely has grown to like have a deal of, like a, a measure of affection for this kid, right? Especially because like he he hides the fact that she had an abortion from the father. Mm-hmm. Sure, um, he's like they're kind of complicit because mm-hmm. they're the two that are like carrying out these crimes and are mm-hmm. basically being forced by the father to do it. So there's sort of like a like a Stockholm syndrome, I guess, kind of effect between the two of them. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he like truly like has any real affection for her beyond the fact that he just sees it as his place in the family to like protect them and mm-hmm. like do the right thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I had never seen this movie before. This was the first time I had seen it. I, um, I was taken in with the movie. I, I mean, I, I wasn't bored with it at all. Like I. I was I was interested to see of where it was going and like how this played out and like I, I was fascinated by the inner workings of the family, uh, because as I get older, when I watch movies for the first time, like that's the first hurdle that it has to pass is right. Am I can I finish this movie? Am I interested enough to pay attention to this movie and not pick up an iPad or a phone or something along those lines? And I was I was pretty interested in this movie almost immediately. Um, and it carried through throughout, um, even, I think it's like, what, an hour, 50, something like that. It's not very long. But, but I mean, it carried it out, like, yeah. all the way through, and I thought it was interesting. And I thought it actually had, like, a, a pretty good amount of psychological depth to it. Um, with both the boy, like, we've talked about, and, like, his coping mechanisms and, like, how he reacts to things. Right. But um, also the father um, of kind of examining what that figure's like. And um, I was probably, I mean, more emotionally involved just because the father's such a prick, right? Um, you know, and stuff like that, and like how there's like a lot of, uh, there's some physical abuse, like, but it's slight, um, but it's it's more like psychological and mental abuse, yeah, uh, more than anything, like throughout it, and um, yeah, he's he's a piece of shit. Uh, I also thought it was interesting they didn't name these characters whatsoever. It's just the father, the stepmother, and the boy is are the names. His name's Toshio, I think. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm talking about like the credits. Like, oh, if you, like, right, look, right. Like they don't actually. They just go, which which gives it, which is very interesting in some ways that you choose to do that, because it gives it almost like a mythical quality in some ways. Mm. Yeah, it's true. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I I found it an interesting movie. I don't know ultimately like what I took away from it, other than it's just a really tragic kind of yeah. story to watch unfold, and um, you know, and just and, a well well made movie. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, it was actually a show show him and were a directed vengeance is mine. Right. Um it's it's Se- Seijun Suzuki I was thinking of that was also doing like the transgressive stuff. Mm. Like Gate of Flesh and um hmm. I can't remember the other ones that they're called, but he's he's pretty good too. But yeah, it's um I don't know, like I think this is a movie that falls like by the wayside mm-hmm. as years go by. Um, although it's preserved on the Criterion collection, so maybe not so much. Um, I didn't find it on any lists. Like when I looked, like later to see like what other people put mm-hmm. on their list for 1969. But I think it's a really great movie, and I think it's really powerful, and I think it's definitely worth watching. Okay, so number two on your list is the movie Medium Cool. It's directed by Haskell Wexler. It stars Robert Forster as John, Verna Bloom as Eileen. The man with the hilarious name of Peter Boners <laughs> and Mariana Hill has a 95% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 79% from audiences. Want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why you think it's so important? Um, so plot-wise, it's pretty bare bones. Uh, Forrester plays John Caselis, who's a <clears throat> cameraman in um, late 60s Chicago. Um, he's... Like this one, one of one of my favorite openings, I think, really in like any movie, um, where him and his partner, who's the sound guy, go and um, investigate a car accident that's pretty obviously like a fatality, but all they're there for is to document it, and then as kind of like an afterthought as they're leaving, they call the um, call an ambulance to come and get them. Um, I love the use of like I'm just gonna say the use of like sound in this movie especially ambient sound and a lot of times the lack of sound is pretty brilliant. Um, uh, Caselis gets fired from his job um, and begins a relationship with a single mother from West Virginia. Um, Then there's a part that's set against, like the second half of the movie set against the backdrop of the uh, Democratic National Convention um, where there was like riots and stuff and um, the son disappears, so they go to look for him, and then when they're looking for him, they get into a car accident, kind of mirroring the one, mirroring the one in the beginning where she's killed and he's like seriously injured. Um, it's a it's a really Wexler does a brilliant job of like basically filming in like a cinema verite style, um, especially with like filming in real life situations with the actors where he's capturing them typically from like um, a medium to far distance, like set amongst the backdrop of like real things occurring. Um, Pretty, pretty interesting examination without being like a condemnation of the media's role in like documenting 
sort of like the more sensational events of the world, like tragedies and um, things that are like titillating and, you know, is like, what is the job of the reporter? What is the job of the cameraman in regards to like capturing that stuff? And Wexler himself being a cinematographer, I think is probably um, like, that's really like close to his heart. And you can tell in the way that he films stuff. I mean, again, it's like very guerrilla style filmmaking in a lot of ways um, in the way that he shoots scenes and um you know set against a really like the beginning of a really turbulent period of time um in america um and especially like in film itself i mean this is one of the early examples of like the break from the hollywood system this is kind of like the mid mid to late 60s is sort of the death knell of that um just in terms of like you don't have executives like wielding all the power about how a movie's made. Like it's more the directors have typically like autonomy or absolute authority as to how their films are made for the most part. Um, especially like from this time through the mid, mid, mid to late seventies with people like, um, you know, Scorsese and Coppola. Um, I don't know, like Michelangelo Antonioni. Like there's a lot of people like during that time who were just given like free reign to make whatever movies they wanted to make. And so you see a lot more experimentation. Like, this is a movie that <clears throat> 10 years prior would have been, well, I mean, never would have been made, honestly. But, right. you know, his his ability to be experimental and, you know, the way that he's able to capture um, just, I don't know, like, the elements of, like, the city itself, like, being a character and the National Convention being a character and just like the cacophony of everything around them. Um, you know, like filming dialogue in a much lower volume than the ambient noise sometimes to like give you the almost like voyeuristic feeling of like looking in on a conversation that you don't belong, you know, as a part of. Um, really good use of music in the film too. Like the opening, <clears throat> they pass off the film reel of the accident to a motorcycle courier who's taken it to the news station and it's set to um an instrumental from the band love and that's like a fantastic part like driving into the city like the way that he films that um really good use i think of like mothers of invention songs later in the movie like especially during the there's like the party they go to that's like prior to the convention it's just like people like all milling about and um plays a song that's like a parody like anti-war song kind of and then I don't know, just, like, it, it, it's hard to talk about the movie from a plot perspective because, really, like, the plot's not that important to the movie. The plot's just kind of, like, what bridges the characters, like, through, like, their actual life, kind of, and that's what I like the most about it is that idea of, like, it feels almost like, docu it feels like a documentary more than, like, a feature film, even though it has, like, all those elements of narrative and whatever. Um, great performance by Forster as John, um, you know, as a guy who's moderately, I don't know if obsessed, but like very much into what he does. Like that's the most important thing in his life is like the job that he does. And then him like building feelings for this woman and this child, um, and still, like, being obsessed with the idea of, like, capturing, like, the moments and whatever. Um, 
yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a lot about this movie that I think was influential, especially to people like, like Tarantino, I know loves this movie. Um, it made a lot of like best of lists for that year. Um, I think a lot of people took, you know, that whole idea of that you can make a movie in like that cinema verite style and still have it be like compelling. And I think that that translated like far out from that into, you know, movies in the seventies and eighties that were made in a similar style. Well, you discovered this movie because of Tarantino, right? Is that correct? Is that what yeah. you told me? I mean, it was like in mid mid nineties. I guess I read an, an article where he was talking about. Um, I think he was talking about maybe just Wexler in general because I know he likes Haskell Wexler a lot. Um, but that's how I knew about it, and then I watched it and was was pretty impressed with it. Like even as a kid, um, I think I enjoyed it more now, like as an adult. So this is a, like, I watched it, um, to this morning, actually, um, cause it's not available like anywhere really, unless you pirated or I like bought the Criterion DVD off of eBay for like 10 bucks. Um, yeah, it was also difficult to pirate just saying. <laughs> okay. I, I had a VHS copy of it cause that's, that's how I first saw it is I bought it on VHS at like a video clearance outlet. Um, really rough transfer on the original copy. Um, and then I got a DVD copy of it later like in the early 2000s um that was a much better transfer the, the criterion transfer is is immaculate like it's a really beautiful transfer of the film um i love his use of color in the movie too like <coughs> it reminds me kind of like what schlesinger tries to do a midnight cowboy because schlesinger does that same thing um in the way that he films especially the party scene towards the end of the movie um, but even like everything, like the way that he films, like colors and like the saturation and, and Wexler just is like amazing at that. It's just capturing like the outside and the city itself is this like vibrant, like almost like living thing. Um, and the way that he can like, he's very good at, at letting a camera sit and just like see things. It's not, there's not a lot of fancy like i mean aside from like the opening scene which is brilliant you know when they're following the following the film like going into the city and then like filming the city like in motion um a lot of the film is shot just from like a a medium to long shot and like some close stuff for like more intimate things but um i don't know it's just a it's it's, it's a great movie yeah close-ups are only used really uh during scenes where it's like two people in a room is the only time Usually with him and her a lot of times. Well, um, there's, you know, there's the sex scene early on when he's with the nurse that's like his girlfriend at the time or whatever. I don't know if he was yeah. girlfriend, like his just paramour or whatever. Um, yeah, and then like later, like during scenes when they're in the apartment, you know, in the having dinner together and mm-hmm. talking and, um, but all the stuff at like the DNC, you know, like when they're out on the green and mm-hmm. there's all the things happening around them and just the way he films yeah. it, it's just so yeah there's one specific sequence because i i'd seen parts of this movie during my teenage years it was on something on television but i never seen the whole thing until this time right but uh there's the scene where she's the mother's walking through that's eileen right yes eileen is the mother i i eileen's walking through the 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 convention outdoors and 
she's looking for the child and I'm positive that Tarantino used that scene as the basis for the scene in Jackie Brown when she comes out of the out of the mall dressing rooms and is feigning that Melanie stole the money um so she can try to trick Nicolette and all them mm. and like the way he films that is almost exactly like how Wexler films that scene like at, at almost the same distance um slightly hurried pace but not too frantic it gets more frantic as it goes on but it's right. like uh, the way he films that I, i'm positive there's some sort of homage going on there uh yeah it's watching this now was really interesting and i think this i had some very particular criticisms of this when we talked about it i but its influence, I think, is probably the the thing that's most fascinating to me about it is that you weren't seeing this in the time period when you look around, mm. but you see it everywhere now. Right. Like the the scene where they're talking, like the kind of the little party scene near the beginning, the way it's filmed and cut, where it's just jumping around from all these different conversations. I swear, every political drama is film like that now. Yeah. Like has scenes that are exactly like that, where it's like up until that point, I really hadn't seen that yet. Um, Ebert makes some really interesting points about this that I think are, are cogent that he talks about and he credits the graduate mostly for this, but he says that this is a movie that exemplifies the trend of movie making during this time period that they were appreciating the intelligence of the audience where movies in the past had always went from a to a to b to c that this movie and many others were jumping from a to c and letting you using movie conventions of the past and just appreciating that you're a thinking person that can connect ideas right. together just jumps from a to c and he specifically cites a scene in the graduate where um uh ben right ben falls in the bed with mrs robinson and then falls into the pool um and goes underneath the water and 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 says that like you know you, the implication is that him going underwater is the same you know um, right. on multiple levels is is the same thing as him falling into bed with her, and I I see what he's talking about in this is that it it, it is a it, it's a, it's a, it's what people at the time period um, more than just Ebert called like an intelligent movie in quotation in yeah. air quotes, and I I think that stuff's really interesting I think that. The filmmaking and the distance he keeps, because he he it's it's a very fascinating the way that he takes real documentary footage that he's filming because that was like his that was his big thing right was document I don't know a lot about Wexler he was a documentarian yeah. the fact that he like is able to take all this footage and then craft a story that he's filming separately still make it look almost like the documentary footage. And then also shoot those actors like you were saying inside of real events with real people. And make a movie out of that, blurring that line between fact and fiction is a fascinating concept. And I think just from a filmmaking standpoint, yes, it's 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 extremely interesting, very well done. I love that like 
I, I, I mean, I love like watching stuff at a distance, almost like you're a voyeur being able to kind of like get a glimpse of this. And the fact that it, like he was able to film during that damn convention and actually catch beatings and stuff on right. camera. I mean, is like as a historical artifact, like this thing is important. That said, and I'll go through just a couple things in terms of criticism of this. And you've already kind of like talked about the bare bones narrative. Some, I think some people were really turned off by that. Um, most people felt that it was hard to get into or was dull uh, because of what some people call like a flat narrative yeah. um, and the lack of plot. Uh, Vincent can be, and, and this is going to be weird. So I'll have to go on for a little bit. Cause I have to, su- everything circles around the same ideas, but it's all slightly different points. So I'm going to try to summarize a bunch of different critics, but can be says that, um, that Wexler approaches the film with all the emotional commitment of a highly skilled technician and because of that distance, um, by blending the documentary footage, the very concept of the film itself, by blending documentary footage and this kind of, you know, bare bones, flat narrative, um, it keeps people from becoming emotionally involved with the characters to where, and he, um, Camby also says that like, what he's saying is that like we experience the movie we experience the events themselves rather than through a character's perspective. Right. So we have this weird distance from the character itself throughout the entire movie. Um, which she finds to be somewhat problematic. Uh, Kerr goes a step further and kind of acknowledges the same things that, um, in a meaner way, because it's Dave Kerr, and says that the movie's too much uh, is too much to be bothered for this movie uh, to have the niceties of narrative construction and character. Um, but then goes a step further and says that the ideas that are being expressed in the film, which is what it's more interested in, is the ideas is that they um, are aren't very original and they aren't very forceful. Um, but it's a trick where the urgency of it makes it seem like it's important. Like the urgency of those ideas. Um, it's these, a, these like, are contemporaneous reviews. Yeah, he says it's a very Kerr says it's a very specific emotional response to a specific emotional situation, and basically says that's all it is. Uh, watching this movie, so I don't go as far as Kerr, but I do get where Camby's coming from, and and some other similar critics about the emotional distance you have from the movie. I like I, I had a hard time getting into it while I appreciate the technical aspects of it um, and think this is really important, like what he's doing from a filmmaking standpoint. I had a hard time getting involved in the actual plot of it to some degree just because I felt like I didn't know who the hell John Caselis was. Right, but so I think that's the point. Yeah. So I think that maybe like in the time period, I mean, Wexler's really like, He's looking at things that we're still grappling with today, mm-hmm. which is what is the role of capturing a moment or what is the role of like, you know, there's that conversation early on where it's like the group of socialites and a bunch of people in the news industry are like talking and, you know, they're talking about different situations they've been in where they had to keep filming or like they, you know, 
captured like images and whatever. And that's Caselis's, you know, that's what he is. He's a guy that just like captures things that are happening. And it's your responsibility as the viewer to, I guess, like kind of like take what you can from like those images that you've seen. And like today, you know, like most of our lives are spent in some way, like debating around the idea of like what, you know, even like today, like what's, what's real news? Like what's like fact, you know, what from like things that we see, you know, like cell phone footage, um, just the constant coverage of every single thing, like on the news and Wexler was seeing that, you know, 20, 30 years before it became even like as, as prevalent as it is now. So I, I, I think that it's important. I think, I think the only reason that you have a narrative in this movie is because you can't have a movie without some narrative, mm-hmm. but that the narrative is so far less important than the idea of just like, that you're watching, you know, from the comfort of your home, you're watching like footage of the riots at the at the Democratic National Convention mm-hmm. in 1969, but that there's also these small human things that are happening during those moments. So it's like there's the grander scale of like the guy just like pointing his camera in a direction and capturing everything that's happening, mm-hmm. but there there's smaller like human elements to it too but that you never can really connect with that because you're not given like the whole story. You're not given, you know, you're seeing riots. You're not seeing like this guy's life or circumstance in conjunction with those riots. He's just a guy that you see get like, yeah. I mean, I think like a lot of people read this as like, um, it can be himself does. And Ebert sees it this way is that it's about like almost like a political and emotional awakening of John's character throughout this. And I don't know if I buy that. And I think that could be another reason I have a hard time connecting to his character is because I think at the very end of the movie, when they're driving away right before the car accident, you see the look on his face as they're listening to the news and just seeing what they've witnessed. You know, they just come from witnessing all this and they're listening to the news and like kind of like this kind of chicken little like broadcast report that's happening and stuff like that. Like, and you see the look on his face and you see that like finally he's kind of getting it, I think. Um, like, then he crashes the fucking car and you know, real quick. I read that, like, people say that, like, she was killed and he was seriously injured. How do you know that? I don't know. Okay. Because, like, uh, I've seen that. Rep- I don't know if there was, like, extra footage maybe or something that wasn't on the release or something. Because, to me, it just seems like you don't know what. Because it's, again, shot at a distance and you don't know who survived or, like, anything like that. Um but I, but I saw a lot of people mentioning that, so I, I, I didn't know where that was coming from. But it's like he gets in this car accident. It's like that's the only point of his awakening to me is like just the look on his face towards the end. You can tell like he's actually feeling it now. Right. Where not only not 30 minutes before that, he's watching I Have a Dream on the television and his response to it is what like, God, I love to shoot film. <laughs> um, like he's watching that speech in real time like and 
that's his response to it is he's still thinking like a like a photographer like a right. like a filmmaker and like there's n- there's no sympathy i have for that character like at all yeah, I like don't... and I, I think it's really hard to invest myself to some degree just with his with his distance yeah and i don't, I don't know that the investment matters really yeah i mean Wexler was, by and large, just a cinematographer. Not just a cinematographer. He's an amazing cinematographer. But that's what he did, is he just mm-hmm. filmed movies. So, <clears throat> he, he was always involved in just the technical aspect of making the movie look as good as mm-hmm. possible. And, I don't know, I mean, maybe that's just his personal... Yeah. His thing, is that, like, when you're behind the camera, you know, when you're the one that's, like, documenting the event, you're never engaged in the actual import of the event beyond just like capturing it does that make sense like you you become like distanced through the lens of the camera like well sure look at the i mean look at any technology in the way that we use it and absolutely we still deal with that to this day is like people behind phones like you'll see people at like live events with their cell phones out recording things Rather than experiencing it, they're right. seeing it through like the, you know, the 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 screen on their phone. Um, so yeah, and there's a distance that gets created, like with with any technology like that. Do you think though that the end of that movie though is a is a like is a condemnation of that though? Like the idea that it's like because I mean that's pretty horrific at the beginning of that movie. Like the, the idea that, like you said, it was an afterthought when they like call like right. an ambulance and they film that. Do you think like the ending is like almost this ironic condemnation is like the moment that he like kind of maybe has like some little like spark of feeling and awakening. It's like he, the, the exact same thing ends up happening to him. And that's like, it's almost like some sort of cosmic punishment for living in his life the way he has. Maybe. I don't know. I don't, I don't necessarily view it as a, I don't view it as like an outright condemnation. I mean, I think that it's a, I think it's too complex a question to, you know, Mm. just give it a black and white, like, sure, whatever Mm. answer. Um, I think as a character arc, I think that it's just, it just makes it tragic, Mm. you know, that Mm. when he's pulled away from the one thing that he like knows and is good at, that's when like these, you know, this thing happens to him. Mm. Mm. Um, and maybe that is part of the whole thing is like listening to the, like, because he's actually was more or less, he was more involved in the circumstance rather than just documenting it. That maybe that's, that's the realization is that there's more going on than just what like people are shown, you mm-hmm. know, by the careful selection of like image and, you know, soundbite and whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Um, again, I don't really care one way or the other for the narrative that much. Mm. Um, I think, she, I, I think Eileen is probably the most human character in the movie and I, absolutely. the most relatable and, and the boy. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, he does a good job of like showing them as like living people like within the, you know, cacophonous or whatever, like confine of, of this event. Um, I don't know. Mm. Um, like how how influential do you think this is? 
because I'm, I'm just like thinking about stuff from the 70s like that I really like and I'm it's like Coppola's inspired by some of this right I think so I think like um, I think the conversation I'm thinking of the conversation I think Scorsese pulls elements from this movie um I think De Palma definitely like again th- this is a guy who's an expert at making directors movies look good directing a movie himself and I think there's a lot of like just amazing proficiency at mm-hmm. like making scenes look like the depth of field in like the way he films a lot of these scenes is amazing mm-hmm. like the amount of mm-hmm. stuff that like you can see happening in eight to 10 second clips of like a scene or like 30 seconds of like watching, you know, when Eileen's like walking across the the park, like the grassy part of the park and there's 50 things happening around her and she's still your focus, but then your eye is still drawn to like all the other stuff. Sure. It's it's amazing. It's brilliant because like he puts her in that yellow or yellow. I don't know what color it is, but like the bright colored, like sundress. Right. I think it's yellow. And it's, it's yeah, just it's, like, so you can, you can track her the entire time. Like you can always see where she is in those scenes, but then just like letting like the camera just like open up and capture everything is it's just amazing. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm, I don't know this for a fact. This is just me guessing. I'm pretty sure that, that Wexler was probably influenced in the way he filmed it by people like, um, like Godard, mm-hmm. um, you know, the French new wave stuff. Um, there's a lot of that in it. Um, and they were a lot less concerned with, like, the overall idea of, like, narrative plot as opposed to, like, showing people in a more, like, existential way of just, like, living. Um, and I think you see that in stuff like, like, I think, you know, stuff like, um, like the conversation you said, that's a good example, The Passenger, uh, Five Easy Pieces, um, movies that were more about just showing life as opposed to like forcing you into like a single narrative or whatever. Um, and then again, I think like into like defining like that era of like new directors. So people like Scorsese, De Palma, Coppola, even people like George Lucas, who was friends with Haskell Wexler, Haskell Wexler. Um, I think it really like inspired a lot of people. And I think it definitely, in terms of the way that people filmed, I think that they pulled a lot from it. And there's a lot of people, fuck, I can't remember his name. There's a guy who is a documentarian from the seventies that I think was really inspired by Wexler and just the way that Wexler filmed this movie. I can't remember his name. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I I think it's pretty influential. I don't know. Aside from being taught in, like, film class, I don't know, like, how much anyone really knows Medium Cool now. Um, yeah, it's... I don't think it's widely known at all. I mean, I think it's probably more known recently than it, like... Maybe people going back and look at Forster's... I think, right. I mean, I think... You heard, you saw a lot of references to Medium Cool when Forrester died, like, a month ago. Uh my guess is like my guess is if you watched peaks it was probably like around the time of jackie brown it peaked again and then probably just recently it peaked again but i think um yeah it probably should be remembered more just because like i said it's it's an amazing film to watch like 
Um, even if you're just looking at it for a historical <clears throat> artifact, um, it's fascinating. I mean, if you're into like history during that time period, so like you know, I mean, so many people were like were reporting like during like the riots, during like the convention, like you know, I mean. If you're into Hunter Thompson, you know, like who reported during that time period in Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, like it's like you should watch this just as a historical artifact. But just from a filmmaking standpoint, it's it's a marvel. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, I just think that as a movie, like that has a story and those kind of things, it I can see where people have a hard time getting into it. I can see that complaint. Um and honestly, I think it gets better as it goes along. Like, it's it's really, like, the first 40 minutes, I think, relies really heavily on setting up time period. Right. And, and also the idea of, like, what what a news cameraman yeah, did. right. Like, sure. Like, what that job is and right. what the media is. But that's why, again, that's why I don't think the narrative matters. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm always okay... As long as a movie is, like, visually captivating. And, I mean, maybe there is some condemnation. Because, you know, during the scene where they're at the party and... Or, no, one of the first scenes where they're filming... Where he's filming at the setup for the um, National Convention. They're playing that Who Needs the Peace Corps song by the Mother of Mothers of Invention. Which is, like, very much like a... Kind of a critique of like hippie culture and mm-hmm. like activism, like not actually having any kind of point. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's. Yeah, I mean, I like when I've thought about it, and I'll be honest, I haven't because it's such a bare plot. I, I haven't given it a lot of thought, and it's just that's just something that came popped in my mind now about the whole ending um, when you were talking about it. But like, it does kind of remind me, like. Like the Joan Didion quote that I love, um, I can't remember the essay's name, but Didion, when she was reporting on, and this is out in Los Angeles, when she was reporting on uh, riots and protests and all that kind of stuff, she ends the essay with her perspective being right on the line between police and the protesters. And while her sympathies intellectually were with the protesters there was this rational part of our brain that thought thought that basically it was pointless and that she thought that if if she thought it would do anything she would step away from the middle of that line as a reporter and join the protesters but she was convinced in a lot of ways that it wouldn't be worth it right um and it feels that that's a similar maybe Actually, that's not a struggle at all. It's, it becomes more of a struggle for him as the movie goes on a little bit, especially towards the end and what he witnesses. And then it's like almost the moment where it's like he could join the protesters. That's when the accident happens. Yeah. Um. So I, maybe it's more interesting than I think it is. Like the more I sit here and think about it. I mean, it. he... Wexler juxtaposes images a lot that show that there's not much difference between like, the police and the protesters themselves. I mean, there's one, like, really brilliant shot where, um, there's a guy wearing, like, a motorcycle helmet, like, that's, like, walking towards, like, to go protest, and he immediately cuts to a police officer wearing, like, a, you know, a police helmet that's doing the same thing, and it's, like, they're basically same, you know, 
whatever, like cadence of their walk, like everything. It's just like it's the mm-hmm. same person, basically, just right. on the opposite side of the equation. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. I mean, th- this is another one of those things where, like, you read so much about this time period and you read about, like, civil unrest and, you know, especially, like, the end of the summer of love. Um, and it feels like a, like a different world almost. Like, it's, it's yeah. difficult sometimes to really like put yourself in that perspective. Whereas like, I would be interested in seeing, you know, cause my dad would have been 20 ish, like mm-hmm. 1920 when this movie came out, I'd be interested to see what he thinks of it. Like from his yeah. perspective of having lived through it. Right. Um, yeah. Not that my dad would ever sit down and watch medium cool. But... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's go ahead and move on to your number one movie. Number one movie for 1969 is The Wild Bunch, directed by Sam Peckinpah. It stars William Holden as Pike Bishop, Ernest Borgnine as Dutch Engstrom, Robert Ryan as Deke Thornton, Edmund O'Brien as Freddie Sykes, Warren Oates as Lyle Gorch, Ben Johnson as Tector Gorch, and Jamie Sanchez as Angel. It has a 93% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 91% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie, what you like about it, and why you think it's so important? Um... So, full disclosure, Wild Bunch is, like, probably in my top 20 movies of all time. Um, Legitimately one of the first movies that, like, if I had to, like, give you a list that this is being, like, the movies that actually got me into not just watching movies for entertainment, but, like, watching movies for something more than that. Um, The story is, you know, there's a band of outlaws um, led by the pike the holden character um who are focused around robbing um one of the big train companies um down near the mexico mexican texas border um after a failed robbery attempt that they were baited into by the um like the bosses of the the railroad to catch them um they embark on a mission to go into Mexico, um, number one, to try and get away because uh, Pike realizes that his old partner, um, who he kind of like abandoned uh, to the law, is now on his tail. And it's like basically the one guy that could actually maybe catch him. Um, goes into Mexico. Uh, they sort of get roped in with um, uh, this guy, Mapache, who's like a generalissimo um, down there who's fighting against, um, Santa Ana. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Um, they're kind of conscripted to rob, um, a train of guns that's being sent down by the U S army, uh, which they do. Um, and then, it just, they, they, they run afoul of Apache pretty early on because, Mapache stolen Angel's um, woman, and then Angel shoots and kills the woman, and then Mapache kind of reneges on his agreement to let Angel go, and they go to save him, and that's what leads to like the climactic bloody gunfight. Um, one of the one of the most like visually striking movies I think, like in the history of cinema. Um, Peckinpah is 
a genius when it comes to the editing of footage um, to give like weight and meaning to death. Um, you know, like capturing not just like the bloody aftermath or like the moment, but like, I don't know how to describe it. Like the, like taking a sequence that in most movies would be 30 seconds or a minute long, like a shootout and showing it in such a way that it like almost makes it like a dance or just this like beautiful, like choreographed. I don't know. I mean, like you can see like his influence, like in so many things that came later, um, the way that it's edited, the use of slow motion in terms of like bodies falling and things happening, slow motion, like interspersed with like, you know, normal speed filming. Um, he does an amazing job of filming that area like that. Um, Mm -hmm the Southwest of the country and then into Mexico. Um, really great performances. You know, Borgnine is great in it. Holden's great in it. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's number one. It's just a gorgeous film. Um, I, I, I love Westerns anyway, and I really like the plot line of like these men who, are kind of out of time at this point. Like their, their way of life is gone. And like, this is their last chance to sort of, what is this? The 19 teens. Is that right? Uh, 19. Fuck. They say what year it is like 19. Yeah. It's, it's pre pre world war one. Right. Okay. So So like 1910, maybe, um, you know, their, their, their way of life is over and this is their, effort to try and like get away from it because you know pike realizes that they can't go on doing this stuff um and i mean that's a it's the the plot of this movie has basically been stolen by a whole lot of like other things um and the idea behind it of like sort of like in um i don't know something like yojimbo uh, where it's like, you know, here's the samurai, but it's, they're sort of moving into the modern era and like how viable is that life of being a samurai? Like how viable is the life of being an outlaw, you know? And there's a romanticism to it, which, um, what's the name of the guy that's chasing him? The the character's name? Deke Thornton? Yeah. Thornton. Yeah. His old partner. Yeah. That, um, that Thornton still feels like that draw of that romanticism and still feels like that connection to it. Right. But still is on the right side of, like, history, mm-hmm. just out of self-preservation, more or less. Um, and just the fact that, you know, they sacrifice themselves, basically, to the march of time. Like, they, you know, they don't, even though, like, they, they get the score, they don't get the spoils of the score because they're still going to have to, you know, I mean, this is, like, this is their end. This is just, like, how their stories like wrap up I guess and it's I don't know I know that like my only real my only real criticism about this movie is there's probably 20 minutes that you could take out of it and it doesn't affect um the overall movie at all like I think that <clears throat> they have the scene where they go to Angel's Village um you know and they dance and they eat and like 
And then they basically, like, have that same scene in Mapache's village. And it's, like, not really a need to have that repetition. Agreed. Um, again, this is part of this new, like, the new Hollywood era where the director, like, had all the control of that. So, I think you see a lot of movies around this time that are a little longer than they have to be because the directors aren't now being forced to edit themselves mm-hmm. as much. Um but, like, Peckinpah's use of slow motion, his use of, I don't know, like, it, it's, the movie feels like you're watching, like, a fable or something, like, unfold, and it's just, I don't know. Honestly, probably my favorite Western of all time, hmm. or at least, like, close to it, and definitely one of my favorite movies, and, I, like, 100% one of the most influential movies in terms of how I view film and just like looking at something that's entertaining because it's a good story and it's got really good performances and it's got um, some pretty impactful action sequences, but it's just like so infused with just artistry throughout where something can be like greater than the sum of its parts. I think just because of the mastery of the person that's filming it, if that makes any sense. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the wild bunch. I love the color of the wild. Like, all the stuff at the river, you know, like the way that you go from like these like soft, you know, browns and greens and yellows of like, you know, when they're trying to take respite and then the scene like where they're like going through the desert and Pike's authority is kind of challenged by the gorges and, you know, he still like overcomes it and he's still like the boss and the leader and no matter what, like, even though they're kind of, like, just idiot, like, scumbags, they still fall in line because, like, they recognize, like, the nobility and the righteousness of, like, what he's doing. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's it's a really good movie. One of the greatest openings, too, of, like, any movie where they're riding into town disguised as, um, infantrymen or whatever, rangers, I suppose, and, um, you know, just those, like, freezes of, like, scenes where it then go it goes into like almost like a negative relief of the scene um the ants like eating the scorpion and like that's when you see like the a film by sam peckinpah like i don't know all, all that stuff is so good such a great movie yeah um hmm. i really like this movie a lot i mean i i don't have like a lot of negatives, I guess, with it. I, I, I think it's too long. Um, and and I, I, I agree with you that that scene specifically can go. And I think there's a lot of stuff that can be trimmed down at different points. Like, again, like my scalpel analogy, it's like, I, I just think there's like certain things that are just like way overdone. Yeah, sure. There, there's, look. So, there's, I, I think, I, I, to the point where it's a slog at some times for f- 10 minutes at a time to get through just because the damn scene's too long. And if you cut out three minutes out of it, it would be much tighter and it wouldn't be feel as rough to get through at times. Right. Well, but because like he's investing so much in building these characters, like it's almost overwrought with character development. Cause you like, there's a lot of things that a lot of beats, like one of the greatest things is, um, there's the kid in the beginning that they leave behind in the bank to like, as almost like a distraction. And you can tell that like, he's fine with it because it allows the main members of the gang to get away. Like this was just, this is an expendable part of the plan. 
And then the realization later when he's talking to the old man that that was his grandson and like that he would have done done things differently to like save the kid and that he could have done those things. But mm-hmm. that he because he didn't know that it was the old man's like grandson that he just let it let the guy die, basically, mm-hmm. um, just to save themselves, like to give themselves. I mean, really, what does it give them like an extra minute, basically, to like get away two minutes? But that kind of stuff is just brilliant, and it's, like, throughout the movie. And, again, like, I, I agree that, like, maybe you trim some of that stuff out. But, um, God, like, scenes be- scenes with, like, Borgnine and Holden talking to each other and just, like... Yeah, right. The amount of, like, history and, like, mm-hmm. camaraderie that they infuse and... Yeah, and I think Borgnine... Borgnine, to me, is, like, the best performance in the movie, honestly, for me. I, like... Borgnine is like somebody I knew from what McHale's Navy or something like that. Like I, I haven't right. seen like tons of Ernest, Ernest Borgnine movies. That's like funny. I feel like you have. Yeah, I mean, like I mean, he's Cool Hand Luke, obviously. Like I mean, but I don't feel I've seen like tons of his movies like in my life. Um, but he's really good in this. Like um, I really like that character a lot. I, I really like his performance in it. Uh, Houghton's good. I think. Robert Ryan's really not given much to do, but like uh, just the look of Robert Ryan at that age is really effective in that uh, as that Deke Thornton character. Yeah, um, and Robert Ryan's somebody I, I fucking love, like in the old noir stuff. Um, he's he's one of my favorites out of that time period. But so I have that issue when I was watching it. I think you're right. I think it looks amazing. And I was telling you about Pauline Kale when I was reading her review of making the comparison to how each frame looks like a Francisco Goya painting. Right. And I thought that was that's a the, really that's good. That's a brilliant line. Yeah. Um, because it's true. It's like, and then you, you look at like every single frame and you feel like it has that with, with those, with the blues and the browns that like dominate that movie. Like blue sky, like blue water, like, you know, like the, the dirt, like all that stuff. It, it does. It feels like, you know, and then the nighttime sequences and stuff like that, like particularly like they do. They feel like Goya paintings. And it's just like, no, it's 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 really well done. I think he's extremely interesting in terms of camera angles he chooses. And like you said, editing those camera angles so that they actually like flow and make sense and it doesn't feel stilted. I agree with all that. Um, I know it's revolutionary. I was annoyed by the slow mo in 2019 because I've seen it so much throughout my life, and I know that this really was like the the impetus of that whole slow mo violence type thing. Right. But I've seen it so much in my life that it like, I, and I've seen it done better now, too. Like uh, that. Yeah, it just uh, it doesn't it doesn't work for me like watching it again. Um the way the violence is shot, I like, but it's just that slow-mo aspect I think is uh, turns me off a little bit like, but what are you going to do? I mean, that's, I mean, I I I I'm not a huge fan of slow-mo either in general, but the way that he intercuts it with like So, look at the opening sequence, right? the shootout in the town with like, and seriously, like one of the most amazingly choreographed sequences sure, like sure. ever yeah. with the prohibitionists agree, like marching. And then the way that he shoots, like 
a man slowly falling off of a building, like mm. intercut like three or four times with like different shots of other things that are yeah. happening. I don't know. It just like yeah, it just doesn't. I, I particularly thought the slow mo in the beginning of that I, I didn't like. I actually yeah. like the slow mo that he uses later much more. Well, it's really impactful in like the last yeah the it, last gun right. Fight. It works much better and. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I like westerns as much as you do overall. Oh, no. um, there's there's certain elements of westerns that I really like, and um, but it's like I like Once Upon a Time in the West better than this probably. Um, Look, I love that movie, but I don't know. Yeah, like I, I it's weird what I like because I hate traditional westerns a lot of times. Um. But I like this movie. I mean, it's, I, I think what it is, I it's like I think I like the spaghetti westerns probably more, right? Or non traditional westerns. So, so it's what's in, the it, man who shot Liberty Valance like wasn't a traditional, even though it's set during the time of a traditional western. It's not a traditional western right. in terms of plot and stuff like that. So it's like I like those kind of things. So the interesting thing, I the fact that you like the spaghetti westerns is that Wild Bunch. And then there's a few movies that come after it, like, um, I'm trying to think, um, Jeremiah Johnson's like hmm. pretty far later and like High Plains Drifter and, but most Westerns were very reverent to the idea of like the cowboy as, um, the hero, like right. the ultimate, like white hat stoic you know man of few words but quick action that would always stand up for what was right and that's like the lone ranger and yeah. um most of john wayne's yeah i hate that stuff like yeah. western mm-hmm. which is why stuff like searchers is such right are such interesting movies sure. because they're a departure you know that's john ford departing from <clears throat> the standard like stagecoach version of you know yeah, and actually talking back and having a dialogue almost right. with those older movies, yeah. But this is like the first real break on in in terms in, in my opinion in terms of like an American film where who do you who who are you rooting for? Number one, like right. where your main characters are villains mm-hmm. and they're unrepentant, mm-hmm. like murderers and killers, but they're still likable and you know. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're rooting for him to succeed a lot of the time, even though they're not in the right. Sure. And it also is the first examination of like, is our you know that moving away from that like golden haze, like idealistic view of America from like the the forties and fifties, where now like, should we look back on the way that you know the way they treat Angel? Right? Like, the way right. that, like, the Gorch brothers treat Angel. Mm-hmm. Like, should we look back on the way that, you know, re-examine those idols and role models from the past and maybe find out that they weren't... Right. Like, as relevant or as... Whatever. Righteous as what we, like, gave them credit for. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, like... I mean, there... Y- y- you can list, like, hundreds of movies that have been inspired. Sure. I mean, Tarantino... Yeah puts wild bunch homages in almost every single movie he mm-hmm. does. Like he will always have some scene yeah. that is like in some way an homage to some peck and pa. Sure. John, <clears throat> John Wu, obviously. And well, yeah, I mean yeah. Like, yeah, like his, his yeah. whole career was sure. based off of like 
taking that to the next like sure. almost like illogical extreme mm-hmm. up of like sure gunfu or whatever you want to call right. it sure um particularly in the killer and hard-boiled i mean those right, are the yeah, two yeah. examples uh-huh. where yeah like there are scenes that are um that's what i'm looking for uh not shot for shot remakes, but like it's it's the spiritual successor to that. Uh-huh. Um, and then like basically like every action movie, you know, from sure, the nineteen eighties right. looked at the Wild Bunch and was like, Well, this is how you film mm-hmm. you know, a shootout, this is how you film an action yeah. sequence. But right. almost none of those movies capture I mean, Wu does a good job with it in the in the killer particularly, of capturing the heart behind that stuff. Like the idea of the fact that there's like a humanity to these murderers. And I mean, that's what Peckinpah does the best. I think is show like the humanity of it. In addition to like, just the amazing like visual. Yeah. I mean, I see like certain like crime movies and shows as the natural extension of the Western a lot of times. And having just rewatched justified again, which certainly is drawing elements in terms of character and dialogue from Westerns, um, from where it's, like, set at, and the idea of, like, this little county having outlaws and those kind of things. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, it's, like, that's radical. Like, because it's, like, what's, it's something, and it's the other thing we're going to talk about, too, like, to end this, because uh, I don't think you can not talk about it, but is, is the violent aspect of it for the time period. But I, I think that... Um, I think it's like what is so commonplace now it's hard to imagine like not like how, how am I trying to say this it's like the the character of Boyd Crowder and Justified is this likable killer outlaw right and it's like he he's so commonplace well drawn great character but it's like he's so commonplace in my whole life of watching sure television movies um now, you know, it takes it, Sopranos takes it a step further in the late 90s in terms of creating kind of like the the television anti-hero and making that a thing. Right. But it's like, you know, it is through most of my life, it's been commonplace to see those characters, certainly in film, 20-some years now on television. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's radical, like that, that, that departure. And it's like... Um, crime's doing a little bit of it sometimes like you know like before this happens but i mean i think you're right taking a look at the you know at at what was like kind of held up as the founding of the country and you know like how we're all the white hats you know like right. the, the white man and like kind of taking a look at that and and re-examining like you know it's what um it's what Unforgiven's doing to some degree, like when we've talked about that in the Western, the top five modern sure. Westerns episode. Uh, Unforgiven's doing a little bit of that. Like we talk about the complications with that, but it's like, you know, of what Clint Eastwood's doing. But it's like, it's, it's kind of examining that. Um, but it's like, th- those were all movies after 1990 that are doing this kind of reexamination of the idea of like who's the good guy, who's the bad guy in a lot of those movies. But this is doing it in 69, which is, I mean, like it's pretty radical. Right. Um, yeah, and, so, I mean, it's important for that reason. It's important for the filmmaking aspect. I mean, it's important for so many reasons, and I think it's a good movie. I just have certain things about sitting and yeah. watching it. I mean, I understand that, I guess. I mean, from a violence perspective, too, like, it's pulling, like, the violence of, like, the Grindhouse, like, B-movie cinema mm-hmm. and putting it into a major motion picture release. Right. And honestly, breaking that taboo that you can't show 
you know, of like what you can show and what you can't show. Sure. And like, yeah. So I mean, for people that aren't, that don't know this, like, it's like plenty of reviewers talk about this. Is people a lot of people would just leave the theater when they came in and watch this movie, like, um, like, like you know, regular audience members would come in and start watching this movie. And when they see the violence in it, they would leave. And there's plenty of like people that talk about people like leaving the theater and throwing up, like when they walk out of the theater from like the violence in this. Yeah. Um, Crazy. When you think of it from the modern perspective of absolutely like even like 10 years, well, even like five or six years later, honestly, but 10 years, especially. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like after I watched this, I was watching an episode of Justify not, like, long after it, and there's a scene where, uh, what's his name, Garrett Dillahunt or whatever, like, this character he's playing just graphically, like, shoots this guy, like, you know, like, three times in the chest and once in the head, um, with no feeling whatsoever, and it's like, it's for FX or whatever it is, it's graphic, and, you know, you see the bullet go through the head and the blood splatter on the uh, truck, and I was nonplussed by that scene. Yeah. Like, I just, like, it's it's nothing to me to sit there and watch that level of violence. And I can't put myself in the mindset of audiences during that time period that's, that are being, um, right. That, that, that are that, that is that impactful to them. It's, it's, it's the exorcist, like, paradox, which is that you'll always hear these people talk about how the exorcist was, like, the scariest movie of all time and... People couldn't watch The Exorcist, and you watch mm-hmm. like interviews with people coming out of that movie that are like shaken to their core by it, and right. you watch it today, and it's quaint, right? But it's like it's even a little goofy sometimes, right? I mean, kind of you can laugh at some of it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just I don't know. The other point I wanted to make about the westerns um, is that, like the westerns persisted through the seventies and into the eighties. I mean, you still had Clint Eastwood and Robert Redford, you know, sure. like doing their thing. Mm-hmm. But, like, the Western then became set in, it, it became the action movie, you know? It was, mm-hmm. like, Delta Force was taking the ideas behind the Western, or, like, yeah. the Rambo series. Right. And applying them to Vietnam, or mm-hmm. the Middle East, or South America, like, Cobra, or whatever. Right. Like, all that stuff. Commando. You know, basically, like, just became... Because they're not, those movies aren't, like the spiritual successors of like the war movies from this mm-hmm. time. Cause the war movies, like stuff like Atari and not, not Atari, but, um, Tora, Tora, Tora and, uh, some other, you know, like popular war movies. Like it was the idea of the Western, like the lone gunman, like the guy with questionable, um, practices, but like, you know, a heart of gold or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. And I think the, like, I don't know. Well, I, I see that, and like, right, I agree with you. The action movies, like, certainly uh, took some of that. I, I think crime did, too. It's like, it, it, it blended, like, it took a lot of elements from Western. So it's like, like, Heat, like we've talked about on the podcast before. Right. Like, Heat certainly has tons of stuff that it borrows from Westerns. It's a heist movie, like, at its core, sure. and like a cat and mouse, like, you know like cop robber movie but it, it, it like you think about like all the things in that like down to the dialogue and the way that the, the way that like uh the tarantino character speaks a lot of the times you think about like the idea that like he's the bad guy but he also has like the soft side to him and he cares about people um like there's the the shootout in the middle of that movie like there's tons of stuff that they borrow from westerns right um and I think that crime, like, 
movies like as they progress through time also took a lot from westerns as well um it's um it's interesting like i mean peckinpah made some other really good movies after this but i mean i think this is like the one thing that he's really known for yeah like more than anything yes it is um i don't know i don't know any other peckinpah movies uh, ballad of cable hogue uh bring me the head of alfredo garcia i've seen that Right. Um, Straw Dogs. Straw oh yeah, Dogs I've seen Straw. Dogs. Yeah, that's right. That's Pack and Paul. Okay. Probably his second best movie. Um, I don't like that movie. Did a movie called The Killer Elite. Uh, did the Osterman Weekend, which is like I've heard of that, but I'm really seen. problematic to watch. Like now, yeah. It's um, Clint Eastwood movie. Uh, or not not Clint Eastwood. I'm sorry. Um, Rucker Hauer is in it. It's like a, I don't know. It's not, it's, it's not that great. Hmm. It's, it's fine, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I just. But yeah, it's extremely influential. I mean, this movie, it's, it's, it's probably, it's probably the most important movie from just a film standpoint of that year. Yeah, I I think so. Yeah. I mean, even if Easy Rider is like what we talked about, like being the one that's kind of like at the end of the day left over. Right. Possibly just because it deals with. Well, Easy Rider is interesting because it's just, it's the culmination of a decade of low budget, I don't know, like quickie movies that were made to capitalize on the fascination with motorcycle culture. Right. And it's like, it's that, but it's also more than that because it's like the death knell of like the hippie movement and Mm -hmm. it's like the... I don't know. It's 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 showing the counterculture. It's hard to explain. I really like Easy Rider a lot. Like I know that you're not a huge fan of Easy Rider. No, I don't like that. Movie. Um, I don't love it, and I would never put it like on a maybe if you'd like top top five movies that have motorcycles in them. Like Easy Rider <laughs> might be on that list. What are your other top five movies that have motorcycles in them? Uh, <laughs> Night Riders, John or um, George Romero movie from the eighties. Okay. Um, Psychomania, which is a horror movie from the seventies about undead motorcyclists. Um, nah, that's not on a motorcycle. That's enough. I I just, I just wanted to see what you if you actually had movies. That night were... night Night Riders and Psychomania immediately come to mind. <laughs> and then Easy Rider. Oh, the Wild Ones. I like that mm. movie. Mm-hmm. That's the. We want to be free to ride our machines without being hassled by the man, and we want to get loaded. Great fucking line. Oh, the wild. No, never mind. I was thinking of the defiant ones. Um, That's different. Right, the wild one. Okay, I know what you're talking about. Uh, Shit. There's got to be, like, another motorcycle movie. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Okay. We're never going to do that list, just so you know. (laughs) That's a good list, though, now that I think about it. I I could definitely get a filter in there. So yeah, so yeah, I, I whatever. This is this this is the, definitely the movie that you sh- that you have to watch if you haven't seen it, like from this year, um, like just from a historical standpoint. I think, like in terms of movies, if you really like movies. Okay, so um, what are you over there looking up? Motorcycle movies. <laughs> <laughs> so all right, 
So that's the list for the week. Uh, next week, we're going to come back with 1979. 1979 is a really strong, like... It's a great year. It, it's Yeah, it's it's a really good year. It's a really good list. I, um... Uh, and then we'll be back with... Um, and then we'll be taking a break. And then we'll be back with 89 and then 99 uh, to, to wrap up the month. Um, as always, if you have any ideas for the upcoming New Year, since we'll be planning the, the first few months of that out here soon... Um, you, know, you can email us at uh, two guys five movies at gmail.com. That's the number two and five. And you can contact us on Facebook. Um, uh, you can also contact us on Instagram um, as Frank is now like drawing coasters uh, of the movies. Um, and I'm posting those on there. So, um, multiple ways you can contact us uh, if you have any ideas that you would like to hear. Uh, as always, I uh, appreciate. Uh, People that have been faithful listeners now for a while. We have um, a number of people that uh, uh, listen to us every every week, uh, and we appreciate that. Uh, any new listeners that we've had here in the past few weeks um, uh, that have found the podcast, uh, we hope you keep coming back. Uh, other than that, I think that's everything for tonight, Frank. Yeah, I think any? so. Yeah. Okay. So could be CC Rider or could be Chrome and Hot Leather. That would round out the list. Chrome and hot leather? Yeah, it's like a... Chrome oh, and hot leather? Yeah, hot, hot chrome leather. and hot leather. Okay. It's about a Green Beret getting revenge on a motorcycle gang that kills his girlfriend. What's that Brian Bosworth? Is it Brian Bosworth? Is that his name? Stone, Stone Cold? Stone Cold, yeah. He yeah. rode a motorcycle on that, didn't he? He did. Uh, yeah. We talk about Harley Davidson. Uh, Harley Davidson, the Marlboro Man? And the Marlboro Man, too. Mm. Right? And yeah. then CC Rider, obviously, is the Joe Namath vehicle. I've never seen that. I've never seen any of those movies, except for Easy Rider. Yeah, you should see the Wild Ones. It's Marlon Brando. It's good. Oh, okay. So that is, what's the Defiant Ones? I don't know. Something else. The <laughs> Defiant Ones is based on the Steinbeck novel, right? Um, is it? I, I don't know. So. Okay, so it is the no. I've seen the Wild Ones then. Okay, that's the Brando movie. Yeah. Um, that's something else. Like what? <laughs> oh, David. That's like a. Right, that's like a, almost like a David Pumpkins like Tony Curtis thing. and Sidney Poitier, the Defiant ones. Yeah, it was remade as Fled <laughs> in the nineties with Stephen Baldwin and um, Lawrence Fishburne. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I've never seen the Defiant ones. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I haven't either. I um, I, I was confusing it with the Wild ones. I've seen the Wild ones, the Brando movie. Um, Fled. Jesus. Um. <clears throat> See, this is the kind of stuff that I hate, is that I actually remember who... I've never seen Fled, but I can remember who was in Fled. Fled was um when we... It's 1996, I think. When we redid um the Regal Cinemas in uh, People's Plaza. Yeah. Um, Fled was one of the... Fled and Life were two of the first movies that the martin lawrence oh okay yeah yeah. Uh but i I remember remember we had a huge banner for fled yeah in the lobby like seriously it was like like an 18 foot banner hanging in the lobby well isn't it isn't it like this like the the standard uh like the 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 poster or like the 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 stand-up art for it is like them being handcuffed but running in opposite directions like kind of like they're both like maybe the the banner was art deco with like feet and like chains oh okay gotcha. and the tagline was we got a fled oh yeah 
That's good. It's terrible. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure, like, the cover art for, like, the poster is, like, them, like, running from something, both handcuffed together, but kind of running in opposite directions to signify the kind of, like, the... There are two different types of people, buddy comedy, like, type slapstick that is probably in that movie. I don't know. I've never I think seen it's it. a drama, Fled. I don't think Fled's a comedy. I think... I think I think I don't, I don't know why we're talking about flavor. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you for listening, everybody. Yeah, I hope you have a good night. night.